Hi, and welcome to the Trailside Channel. We are so glad you're joining us. God has a place and a purpose for you, and we hope this message helps you find that and know how much He loves you. Thanks for stopping by and enjoy the message. We'll be in Matthew 14 a little later. And I want to read you, it's just, it's the first 12 verses of Exodus 14. You're going to hear this, and you're like, Sean, that doesn't sound great, but stay with me. Okay, we got, we got about 24 and a half minutes, because I have a timer on the wall now. Everybody said amen. Yeah. Some of you were like, we couldn't beat the Baptists to lunch. I got you. It's okay. This is what, this is what the book of Exodus says. I've got the ESV version. That's within the Bible app as well, if you want to use that. Um, if you have your own version, that's totally fine too, but this is what it says. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and then camp in front of Pi-Hiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. I know it sounds like we're reading out of um, Lord of the Rings, but I promise those are real places here. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am Lord. And they did so. Now, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and he said, what is this thing we have done? that we have let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers all over them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Piharoth in front of Balsaphon. When the Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And we're going to pause there. Now, let me give you a little refresher what's happened in the first 13 chapters of Exodus. Moses has gone in, been called by God to get people out of 400 years of slavery, 10 generations of living as slaves, unable to worship, unable to live freely, unable to do anything. Babies born after babies born after babies born into and will die as slaves. And Moses comes, and God says, do these things. Plagues come down. The Pharaoh gets mad at him. He's like, get out of here. I don't want to deal with your God anymore. Just move. And so the people leave. Israel leaves. And just before chapter 14, we see where it says that God is leading the people by pillars of fire and clouds, by day, by night. And so imagine you're part of Israel and you're walking out of Egypt. You've been hearing this promise of God for generations and generations and generations. And you're marching in. You're going toward the promised land. And God says, stop. Stop. Turn around and camp. Uh, maybe, that, maybe it's just me, but I'm, I'm going to say no to that. Right? Like, I'm, I'm going to go. Which is why, I'd, if I was in this story, it'd be like, and then one idiot drowned in the Red Sea. And that would be my legacy for the rest of history. But, but God says, stop. Turn back 
and wait. And he has them camp in this spot that is actually kind of impassable. They've got the Red Sea here. They've got the desert on this side and behind them. And then all they have is marsh, muck, impassable. I don't know if you guys have ever been to Charleston, but it's very clear when you get there. Right? You're enjoying 26, kind of. It's kind of the worst drive ever, but you get down there, and all of a sudden you get this smell, and you're like, okay, who took off their shoes? <laughs> right? And that's the nice version of that. You're like, who did this? And you realize it's not that at all. You're just crossing the bridge where the water meets the land, and it's become this muck this marshland, and it's like, wow, it's beautiful, but it also is terrible to smell. And, and if you've ever tried to walk through marsh, I got news for you, it, it's terrible, a terrible idea. You can't get through your boots stick or your flip-flops if you're from the state of South Carolina. It's impassable. And so what God has done is he's taken his people out of Egypt into this land. They have a sea beside them. They have marshland around them and desert behind them. They're in a rock and a hard place. There's nowhere for them to go. And God says, stop here and wait. In fact, uh, the pi haroth, what it means is the pi actually means house. And it's, it's house of the mouth of the canals is what that means. So it's literally like they're at the very front part of just water and junk everywhere. This is where God has his people. Stuck. And God instructs them or instructs Moses to take them in this route because what he's going to do is he's actually going to show who's in charge. It, it, it would be easy, right? It would be easy for God to just plow the road ahead of them, knock the sea out, like, hey, walk this way, go into the promised land, live forever. That, that would be great. But that's not what God does. That's not what he wants because that's not how he gets the fullness of his glory. And one thing that we have to learn that we see Israel learning over and over and over and over again is that God will get his glory. Not Israel, not the people. And so in the first two verses, it, it looks like evil might win. Right? He said, take them to Israel, turn back and encamp in front of Pyroth between Migdal and the sea in front of Balzaphon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. And then Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and his host. Now, when we read that, that doesn't sound like the best opportunity, right? Like the most secure plan. God says, hey, I'm going to take you into this land. I'm going to stick you there. There's nowhere for you to go. And then, remember that guy who hates me and hates you and tried to kill all of you? Yeah, he's going to come after you. I'm going to send him to seek you to try to destroy you. That's what, that's what God says. That's his plan. That's bananas. That should sound weird to you. Hey, I'm going to make your enemy more angry, and then I'm going to show him where you are, and I'm going to send him at you. Oh, and by the way, he's going to get the bulk, every bit of what he has in force and army and, and money and chariots. He's going to take everything he has to come get you back, to come destroy you because he's mad. Now, if I'm Israel, I'm kind of like, hey, uh, did you mean to talk to that group over there? Because that sounds terrible. 
But, but, but then this is what the Lord says through Moses. He says, I will get glory over Pharaoh and his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Now, here's what happens. It looks like evil is winning. To the, to the eyes of anyone else, not Pharaoh, it looks like Egypt is coming back and going, hey, we messed up. We're going to take you all back in slavery, kill the ones that we're really mad at, and then you'll be with us forever, and you'll be our slaves forever. That's what it looks like on the outside looking into the situation. But good news for us, we have the whole story, right? Right? You guys with me? Yeah. We know how this is going to end. And so, so Pharaoh does. He gets all of his stuff ready. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we've let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them and camped by the sea. So here's what happens. Pharaoh gets ticked off and he thinks maybe God miscalculated. Because Pharaoh's the authority. So he says, man, how dare Israel leave and walk out defiantly is what scripture says. Like tooting their horns, strutting their shoulders out. Right? No fear. How dare, how dare they walk out on, on me like that? Pharaoh thinks that Israel's divine luck is gone. They've miscalculated. God messed up. How often do we see moments in life where like, man, God just must have messed up or forgotten about me. One of the most emotional yet not great attacks on scripture I've ever heard is like, well, what about kids in Africa? Did God just forget them? Like, did God mess up? Or what about the poorest of poor in places like the Dominican Republic? Did God just forget them? Can I tell you what I've experienced in my time of being able to go into places like that? They love Jesus much more than so many, 99% of the people walking in churches in America today. You know why? It's because they know that everything they has come comes from him and that nothing they can do will ever be better than what God gives them. It's not that God miscalculates. It's that God has purpose in everything. It's that he didn't forget them. That's the crazy part of this. The world, uh, Pharaoh, the evil will say that God messed up and that then they can attack him. What God is showing is that he will get glory in all things, in every part of your life, all the time. Even when you do something stupid, God is going to get glory out of it because he is God and you are not. It's very easy to see. Because what that does is it shows us very clearly that we are not the all-powerful person we think we are. And maybe it's not in mind, but a lot of times it's in action. I can fix this. If I just work a little harder, if I just get a little more upset, if I buckle down a little tighter. But no, that's not what it is. It's not about your action. It's about God getting glory. He just says, he's got it. He's taking care of it. Even when Pharaoh's anger is burning and all of his officers are burning and he's taking every bit of power he has to the people, 
He has not forgotten that God is God. He just thinks he's better than him right now. There's a great quote out of the movie 300 that says, we shall shoot so many arrows, it shall blot out the sun. I'm like, all right, that sounds pretty cool, yeah. That's what Pharaoh's trying to do. He's trying to exercise this immense demonstration of power that they can even overcome things like the sun. And so Pharaoh reacts, and, and what he does and, is he gratifies his own malice and his revenge but here's what happens. Instead of furthering Pharaoh's plan, Pharaoh furthers God's glory by bringing all of his army, all of the people, all of chariots. The biggest demonstration of power that Egypt had ever made in history happens right here, and God is about to use it for his glory, not Pharaoh's. And so pick up at verse 8 again. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all of his horses and chariots and horsemen and army, and overtook them or found them, not actually overtake and like destroy, found them, approached them, and camped at the sea by Pyroth in front of Balsavon. And when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. Now, here's a, a weird point, right? If we don't dive into this, if we just kind of read it on the surface and walk through, here's what we miss. It's not that Israel was a big group of people, they're moving slow, and it's not that Pharaoh just had horses and said so they moved fast. When you actually go and read this a little deeper, what you find out is that when God had them camp and wait, he had them wait for eight days. Again, that's where we get the title of the series here. So when God says, turn around and camp, he literally leaves them there for eight days. Eight days that Pharaoh and his army have to go find them and pursue them. Eight days that the people of Israel are waiting for God to show up and hoping that their enemy is not coming to get them. Eight days that ends with them seeing Pharaoh and his army ready to overtake them and put them back in slavery. And then they have to go, God, where are you? Why have we been waiting? God purposed and pointed them out to be obedient to wait for eight days. Guys, I don't like waiting for eight hours. I don't know about you guys. That's my max for any event. Sleep, eight hours. Time between meals, eight hours. Three hours, but <laughs> eight days they're waiting. Put, put, put ourselves there. Imagine God had made this promise to generations and generations and generations and generations. And you finally have your family and, and you're, you're living out the promise is here. You're out of Egypt. You have a new life for your family. And God says, stop here. And all you see is that same enemy coming to overtake you and pull you back into slavery. What is your thought process? You don't even know if it's slavery. They might just kill you. What is your thought process? As you're waiting, God says, stop. And our reaction would be like, God, but look. Like, I hear them. I, I see them. They're ready to come after us and, and take us back. What do we do? This would be the second opportunity for me to be in the Bible as the guy who jumps in the sea and swims and dies. 
Because here's what we do. Uh, here's what I do. When I see things going out of whack, I try to control them and fix them and hold them. And you know what happens? It's like grabbing air. Or for those of you who suffer visually and can't really see that in your brain, grabbing sand or water. But that's what we try to do is control. We try to say, okay, this is going out of whack. I'm going to buckle down. I'm going to tighten up. I'm going to fix this. And then as things are falling through our hands, we're going, God, why aren't you fixing this? And God's saying, stop, put the water down and trust me. I have a plan. It's for my glory and for your good. And we're going, but God, but God, it's falling through my hands. What do we do? What do I do? What do I do? I don't, I don't have the money to do this. I don't have the time. I can't fix this. I'm not a doctor. I, 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 disease is rampant. I, I can't fix these things. People are coming after me. I, I don't know what to do. Work is hard. People are being really rude. They're coming after me. They hate me. I don't know what to do. And you're holding these things in your hands, and God is saying, stop, put it down, and let me show you my glory. But we still go, but God. <coughs> See, how in the world do they manage to catch up with Israel? It's not that they caught up. It's that God sent them to an impossible place and said, wait. For eight days. Eight days. Eight days of nothing. Eight days of no movement. <clears throat> eight days of no direction. Just eight days of sit here, camp, and wait. See, Israel's period of waiting was not a call of action, or if it was, you could say the only action they were called to was to be obedient and quiet and trust. And their action was to let the enemy of the people catch up in their pursuit. And, and to fear things that looked really bad, like them being captured again and being taken hostage again. And here's the bigger avenue of this, guys. The bigger thing we need to think through is that if this happens, you know what it also means? It means that God is a liar and is not trustworthy. And, and if God fails and doesn't follow through, then he's not God. And so the people who have hope in God would have the propensity to doubt that God even cared. If, if God fails in his promises, then he's not God. But on the other aspect of that, since he doesn't, we can give and trust everything we have with him because he consistently proves himself to be exactly who he says he is. Because their action was to trust. And so, let's continue in verse 10 and 11. This is what Israel does, which makes me feel a little better. So when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. You're like, okay. Step one, good step, right? Good step. Bad news, there's more verses after this that we have to read, okay? So let's continue. And then they said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we might serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians and to die in the wilderness. Let me tell you why that's a hilarious statement. 
<clears throat> okay, the people of Israel cry out to God and then immediately whine to the leadership. I have no idea what that's like. It's a joke. But no, they, they, they cry out to God for a minute and then they go, okay, uh, that's not, okay, now it's your fault. So they go to Moses and they're like, hey, what in the world? Why are you doing this to us? Isn't that so common? When, when God doesn't move the way we want him to, we point fingers and go, it's your fault instead. How, how often do we spend time blaming leadership in our lives, blaming authority? I'm not even talking about me in church. I'm just talking about you in your life. How much time do you spend saying, if so-and-so wasn't an idiot, then this would be better? Guys, here's what that does. That puts us in the same frame of reference as it does Israel, who is more scared of Pharaoh than they are God. I'm not saying that because you're bad people. I think it's very natural. That's my encouragement, is that you are acting very naturally. So let's learn how not to do that. And the really funny thing about this is when you read this and they say, is it because there's no graves? Right? That's their response. The first thing they say Is it because there's no graves in Egypt you've taken us away to die in the wilderness, verse 11? Let me tell you why that's hilarious. Can I tell you what Egypt's main moneymaker in this point of time was? Graves. Three quarters of the land in Egypt was reserved for graves. They either made graves or buried people there. And so they actually are being very sarcastic with Moses. Like, hey, oh, is it because there's no graves in Egypt? You had to pull us out here? Jeez. You can almost see the teenage eye roll coming out, can't you? Like in the people of Israel. Three quarters of the land of Egypt is for graves. That's like coming here and being like, oh, you got me this because there's no camo in the upper part of Greenville. Surprise. Right? That's a little little bit. I have camo. It's cool. So is it because of grace? Literally, they're not asking a relevant question to Moses. They're not asking for direction. They just want to be angry. That's all they want. They're like angry little toddlers. That's what they wanted. They, they want answers. They want clarity. They wanted their way. So remember the heartbreaking part. Verse 12, is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. It's better for us to be there than to die in the wilderness. Here's what, here's what they actually are saying. Remember in Egypt, we told you we would rather serve Pharaoh than follow Jesus, follow God. They didn't know about Jesus yet. Would it not be better do you remember when we told you we would rather be in servitude to a foreign power and authority than we would actually follow God? It would be easier to be more comfortable than it would be to follow God. That's what we want. That's what, that's what Israel tells Moses. You drag us out here to die. We told you, leave us in submission to an authority that does not honor or care for you so at least we can be comfortable instead of having to do anything risky to follow God. 
I'm not even going to have to preach the last little bit of my sermon that talks about application because, hello, it's saying it itself. That's what's happening. God's chosen people that he has given a purpose to and a place to go and said, wait, I'm going to do something incredible for my glory and for your good to destroy your enemy. And the people would rather say, we'd rather serve under that guy who's coming at us with all of his power than to actually live and trust you to take steps that we don't know yet. It's ludicrous. It makes no sense. But guys, it only makes no sense because we know what's going to happen in the next couple weeks. But what about you? See, we have a problem with trusting God. We have a problem with saying, hey, God, here's the, here's the box I'm going to operate in, and then I'll give you the leftovers, that little bit that I can say, hey, I can trust you with that. I'm good with that. Until we tell God, wait. When all he's doing is instead his action, his ask is to tell you to be obedient. Because we would rather serve in comfort than in faith. And that terrifies me. Because I've been there and because I live in that place a lot. So before we get to the last two verses with 13 and 14, I want to want to dive into this and talk about how this works for you. What do you do when you're also stuck? What do you do when you're at a place where you have to wait on God and he said, stop and be patient? How do you survive when it seems like everything you've worked for is about to fall apart, and it seems like for a moment that Satan is winning, that the enemy is having his way, that you are being destroyed, that you're being pulled piece by piece, and you're ready to give up, how in the world do you take this to heart so that you don't? Well, the first part is this. You have to remember that our perception of danger when it's within God's plan, is actually God's plan of protection. Here's what I mean. Verse 1 through 4, we talked about. God says, listen, I want you to stop. Camp here. Wait. And I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And I'm going to send him after you. And I want you to wait. I want you to be obedient. Here's what we learn. Our perception of danger within God's plan, within God's plan, is actually God's plan of protection for you because the plan of the enemy is always in God's hands. Listen, Satan does not do anything that is not under the authority of God first. Now, I'm not saying that means that God gives people diseases and causes car wrecks and causes terrible things to happen. Not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that Satan and everything he does and everything the enemy does to mess you up and to hurt you is always going to still fall short of God's glory and his plan because the one thing Satan can't take away from you is eternity with him, with God, not with Satan. Let me clarify that. <laughs> because the action of the enemy is always within God's authority, every bit of it, all the time. Every struggle you have Every fight you're existing in, everything that you are begging God from help from is under and within the authority that he has, which is over everything. There's a great quote from Matthew Henry. 
It says sometimes, God sometimes raises difficulties in the way of salvation of his people, that he may have the glory in subduing them and helping his people overcome them. That was very, very poignant. But the outcome of the enemy's action is always for God's glory. See, Pharaoh had a plan to ruin Israel, but what God did is he had a plan to ruin Pharaoh. The second is this, even though Satan knows the end, he won't stop attacking you, and that's okay. In fact, and we see this throughout Scripture, Luke 22. Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Hey, Peter, Satan has asked if he could sift you like wheat. Yikes. 1 Peter 5 says, Your enemy, the devil, prowls around the earth like a lion waiting on someone to devour. Yikes. I don't like cats. There's a reason. They don't care about you. They want to hurt you. That's why Satan takes the form. Revelation 20, though, tells the answer. That, that Satan will be cast into the fire forever, that he will not overcome you. That the world cannot beat you. It can, it can hurt you, but it will, not, it will not have victory over you. That it cannot take anything away from you. Romans 8 says there's no condemnation. Romans 9, there's nothing that can separate you. Nothing, any man, person, demon, being, whatever. There's nothing that they can do to ever separate you from the, Lord, the love and glory of Jesus. Because he is the authority. And Satan knows it. And until it's time for him to go into the lake of fire forever, he's not giving up. But God gives us a means of protection. third is this, our fear is always informed by who we truly believe to be an authority. What you fear the most, what causes you the most stress is most likely the thing that you think has the most power in your life. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's someone else loving you. Whatever it might be. Maybe it's control. See, Israel feared the Egyptians because they had a demonstration of power. They had 600 plus chariots, which is actually hyperbole, a lot of the scholars think. But it's this demonstration of a fake fear, of a false power. And, and Israel feared the Egyptians because where they were, the situational variable of, of where they physically were told them and informed them that they had no way out and that the enemy was pursuing them. And lastly, they feared the Egyptians because they demonstrated the thing we always fall into, which is that the grass is greener over there than it is here. It's better for us to die in Egypt in comfort than it is to be here in the wilderness with you. Lastly is this. The key to your response after attack is action. It's not accusation. This is where we'll finish with the last two verses because Moses gives an unbelievable response. Now remember, Moses is in this too. He, he is encamped with the people. He has the pressure of millions of people looking to him as a leader keeping them focused. 
keeping them doing exactly what they're called to do. And, and, and they are now approaching him and saying, why did you do this? And instead of saying, because God told me to, or you're stupid and you should shut up, or killing them, or whatever other human response we might see out of Moses, instead of that, listen to what he says. It's incredible, and it's my, my hope for you this morning as you walk out of here in the middle of your struggle, in the middle of your strife, whatever that is, is that you would maintain the heart Moses displays here to us this morning. This is what he says in verse 13. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. See, Moses, the first thing he says is don't be afraid. Church, I don't know what you're going through. I, I, I welcome you to come to me and and ask, and we'll pray and walk through it with you. That's why we exist as a church. That's why I'm here as a pastor. I don't know what you're going through, but let me help you take a first step. The first step is acknowledging and knowing that you're not in control. You're not. You can try. You can fight. You can grasp the sand or the water or the smoke or whatever it is you're trying to hold, and you can, you can do this and keep picking it up, but what you're going to find is that it falls through because you're not the one who ordains it to have gravity to go through your hands. You're not the one who causes that to happen. You're not the one who forces the density of your hand versus a tiny piece of sand. You are not the one, but the one who is says that he is going to get glory and it will be for your good. And so your goal then is to trust him in it. Don't be afraid. See, when we operate in control and we lose control, it presents itself as fear and stress and anxiety. When we maintain control and we tell ourselves things are happening because of what we've done, it presents itself as pride. And pride is the very first step to a large downfall. And that one hurts. But fear dies when we are silent and trust God and do not fear the variables ahead of us. We see the enemy approaching and we see the variables around us and we don't fall fear to that. We don't fall down in authority to that, but instead we say that God is who God says he is and he is not leaving you. Second is to stand firm and remember your salvation. Build an altar, which we're going to see next week. That's why I love that we sang, Come Thou Fount. Thank you for that, Riley. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Hither by thy help I'm come. You know, you know what that is? That's a really fancy word for an altar. Here I raise my, my statement of remembering what God did for me because by his help I'm here. Whew. Did I give anybody else goosebumps? Look, you see them, right? That's what that, that, when we sing that song, that's what we're saying. Here I raise my altar, but it is because it is because of his help that I'm here today. And that's a remembrance of what God's done for you. When Moses looks at his people, he says, look, don't be afraid and remind yourself that God is not going to forsake you and leave you, that he is incapable of doing that. And so instead, raise an altar and remember what it is God has done. You still have to come next week. I'll talk more about it.
I forgot the book. It's sitting on my desk. I'm going to look really pastoral here and read a little verse or a section out of the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe. And Aslan is talking to the children, and he says, hey, Aslan is coming. to not Aslan, I'm sorry. Um, another character, I forget. He's talking to the children. He said, Aslan's coming. And the little girl's like, well, what is he like? Is he a man? He says, no, he's a lion. Well, I don't know that I don't know that it seems very safe to meet a lion. And the response to the little girl is, no, no, no. He's not safe. He is a lion and he is powerful. But he is for you. Church, that is the God that you serve. He is, he is not safe. But he is not safe for your enemy, he's not for you. Because he has purpose in your waiting and he's not done with you. And so all he asks is to stop, wait, and trust. The last is this. It says, be silent in accusation. Deuteronomy 20 says, for the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies and to give you victory. Psalm 44 says, though you, though, sorry, that we will push back on our adversaries through your name, we will trample down those who rise up against us. Deuteronomy 3.22 says, Do not be afraid of your enemies, for the Lord your God himself will fight for you. Church, this is the God you serve. He is a lion. And when he says wait, when he calls you to obedience and to trust, do it. Because he is not done with you yet. Jesus, thank you for all you do. God, I thank you that we can see the errors of <laughs> we can see the errors of Egypt. And of the disciples. And that we can find hope in them. And so Lord, as we wrap up church this morning, my heart and my prayer is that you would be with us that we would give you those things we're holding on to, that we would trust you with everything we are, knowing that you have not forgotten us, knowing that you will not leave us or forsake us because you are incapable of doing so, and knowing that with that, we have the Lion of Judah fighting our battles for us. And nothing can take that away. So in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you were encouraged by the message and you feel closer to Christ than you ever have before. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry, visit us in person, or help support our mission as we seek to love Jesus, serve others, and live unified, check us out online at trailside.church, or you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks so much for listening, and we can't wait to see you again soon.